Hi, this is Tom Van Dusen from Buffalo, New York. The Sounding Thing America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Donate, donate, donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of young America. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is uh, writer Sarah Val. Her newest book, The Wordy Shipmates, is her second historical tome. It tells the story of uh, the pilgrims in the Massachusetts Bay Colony and uh, how, how Puritanism has uh, shaped America to some extent. Um, you might also know her from her uh, frequent radio works and her work on This American Life. Uh, Sarah, welcome to the Sound of Young America. Thanks. It's fun to have you on the show. So far, so good. Really? Just the intro? <laughs> yeah. I didn't write it out. I was a little self-conscious about that. You got the title that. of the book right. So. Well, I, I, what I do is I keep the book handy. I don't really keep notes, but I also wrote the names of the different historical guys so I wouldn't mix them up that's, that's on this great. piece of paper. Preparation. You know, that's what it's all about. I learned that early in my radio broadcasting career. <laughs> mm-hmm. So speaking of preparation, what led you to want to write about this particular story? What got you in- engaged Can enough to... Can we come to... back to that question? Yes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um. You're tired of doing radio <laughs> interviews. I understand, Sarah. Let me. Okay, let me ask you a, a different question. Please. Um, were you a lifelong history nerd, or is this uh, uh, something that has developed as your life has progressed? Yeah, it's more of a, an evolution, if you believe in evolution. Um, I I was a an art history major in school, you know. My, my family, my dad and my grandfather were, uh, you know, big into history, so there are pictures of me as a four-year-old straddling a Civil War cannon, that kind of thing. and uh, Just like four-year-olds did in the Civil sure. War days. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, a lot of, you know, stopping off at a, a little bighorn battlefield, that kind of thing, but I never enjoyed those things. Um uh, really, I got it into writing about history, just working on this American life. It's not a good story, but it's a true story. But wait, but that's not an explanation, because it's not as though This American Life is a history program. Is this kind of one of those gotcha journalism kind of things? Absolutely. Um, what I meant was, Jesse, that uh, I was writing little stories for This American Life, and then one of them happened to be about the Trail of Tears, you know, the forced genocidal march of my Cherokee ancestors. And that was um, the first piece like that I ever worked on. And I just kind of, you know, fell in love with the the research and the looking stuff up and the figuring things out. What do you think it was about research and l- looking things up? You know what appealing? it is, is um, I'm a terrible reporter. And uh, uh-huh. because... Uh, I don't like to pry, uh-huh. and I always dreaded, uh, you know, interviewing people like you're doing now. Right. Because um, who knows? They might uh, react. Noticed... They re- might react hostily have to you your noticed... very first question. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, have you ever noticed that you you can either be a good person or a good interviewer? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, it turned out that I just really am. I like to think that's why my show is so lousy. <laughs> I'm really um, I'm just better with dead people. Uh huh. There's just something about uh, dead people. I can just I can just figure it out. I just get what makes them tick in a way that I could never really do with you know the living in front of me. What kind of stories are most attractive to you? Hmm. I mean, I like American history because I think you know the things I, the stories I'm attracted to um, in terms of history are are sort of the same as the kind of stories I'm attracted to in say film like um the part of me that likes quentin tarantino is interested in the you know massacre of the pequot i guess i like not that i like violence but i'm interested in um stories that have violence um so like the puritans were great because they're just a bunch of argumentative jesus freaks who can't stop bickering with one another so I like um, stories about disagreement, conflict, warfare. Um. <laughs> well, that's what history is there for, right? Yeah. It seemed like one of the big attractions of this story for you, or at least one of the parts of this story that you wrote particularly rapturously about, was the literariness of the Puritans. Mm-hmm. Their, their particular brand of god nerdery. Yeah, they're they're real writers. I mean, all considering that, you know, they were basically just pioneers who they have to do all that normal pioneer stuff, you know, having to do with the corn and the cabin <laughs> building and, you know, all that stuff, which hewing, for me that would there's various there things. is there's hewing, there's churning. Uh-huh, um, sure. But uh, they do all that stuff, and then they still make time, you know, to write all these books and pamphlets and journals and letters, and um, their their writing is what really attracted me. And I think that's true of a lot of historical um, periods I'm interested in. Like, I'm not just interested in the Civil War. Like, I'm especially interested in Lincoln's speeches during the Civil War. So I do like a, um, you know, verbal component. It feels like a, a, a lot of the book is almost like a, a, an explication of some of the written discourse of the of wow. this period. If that doesn't sell this thing. <laughs> 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 but no, I mean, that's, that is um, what I, I love about them. I mean, the whole thing kind of started because I was obsessed with this one sermon, um, the John Winthrop sermon, A Model of Christian Charity from 1630. And, you know, I, I I came for that sermon. But then, you know, of course, I stayed for Roger Williams, a key into the language of America. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. that's the way that's the way you often hear the story told. I'm not made of stone. What kind of what kind of understanding of this world did you have before you started to get really deep on it? Well, I mean, I love that sermon. Here's one thing I I knew that made me want to know more. Um, I liked that sermon of Winthrop, but I also liked um, the story of um, Roger Williams, uh, who Winthrop and his fellow magistrates kick out of Massachusetts and Williams goes on to found Rhode Island. But I loved the story of how, even though Winthrop is one of the people um, making the judgment that Roger Williams should be banished from Massachusetts, 
um, Williams escaped to Rhode Island because someone warned him that the militia was coming for him to stick him on a boat and deport him back to England. And it turns out that the person who warned Williams that the militia was coming for him to enforce the banishment, that person was Winthrop. So Winthrop is officially banishing Williams. And in private, he's basically saying, you know, dude, if you want to stay here, you, you got to be gone, you know, when, when the cops come for you. And um, I just liked that, even though there's this definite uh, public disagreement between the two, that privately Winthrop was enough of his friend to warn him. And then the fact that they kept up their um, correspondence they kept writing letters, you know, till Winthrop died. As for what I knew beforehand... Um, yeah, it seems like you had a much more nuanced picture of this whole situation than, say, I did. I just mostly just knew about their buckle shoes. Well, <laughs> yeah, you know, that only... that I've only learned to uh, have a fairly, you know, rudimentary knowledge of a subject before I start writing a book because I have wasted months and months writing books that um, it turns out I didn't know enough going in. You know, like I was once spent, I think, about, oh, six months or so writing a book about Kansas in the 1850s, uh, you know, bleeding Kansas. And, you know, it has all this, you know, drama and violence and John Brown and all this. But about six months in, I just realized, like, what is the question this book is asking? And I realized it was asking the question, should there be slavery in the West? <laughs> and then I realized we kind of answered that, you know, <laughs> like if that was the animating, you know, qu quest of the book, then it was a waste of time. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about these central characters to whom you have already alluded, but uh, who, names that might not mean anything to our listeners or might only just have like the faintest of resonances from you know, Thanksgiving week in second grade. Okay. First of, first of all, John Winthrop, who is he? What is his deal? He is the first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He wrote the sermon, A Model of Christian Charity, and that's where we get the um, image of New England and then later America as a city on a hill. Um, is that enough? He's sort of a, he, he's sort of uh, partly a theologian, but also partly a, a governor as well. It seems like that those two things going on are yeah, part well, of what's interesting he's, about um, him. He's you. officially the governor, and um, I don't know what your hobbies are. Uh, like, what's your what's your most passionate hobby? Um, estate sale shopping. Okay. That's so a that's, pretty sad that's what, hobby. That's what, I, I was trying to think of something really good. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping I could say, well, you know, action sports. <laughs> that's what... So, um, theology t is sort of Winthrop's estate sale shopping. You know, uh -huh. it's... it's um, it's um, it's a hobby. It's 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 his uh, it's his passion, as it is for you know all of his friends. So he is kind of a, an armchair theologian, and that sermon, um, you know, it's a lay sermon, meaning a sermon delivered by a person who isn't um, you know, an ordained minister. And what else do I want to say about him? I mean, the thing I love about that sermon is is the part where he's telling these people. And he's giving it before they arrive in New England, and, and and probably back in England he's giving it to them. And it's this, uh, it's him telling them how hard it's going to be and how much they're going to need each other, and that we should 
rejoice together and mourn together and suffer together. And um, it's a very poetic image of community. He tells them that they should be as members of the same body and, you know, knit together in this work as one man. That sounds distinctly less Reagan-esque than we might have a picture of the city on a hill. Yes. Well, I mean, the sermon is about charity and generosity. So, I did I did always find that ironic, you know, that President Reagan would take a sound bite from this speech that's kind of about welfare and, and you know, like <laughs> taking we should be willing to take care of each other. Um when, you know, that wasn't really what his administration was about. It was about, you know, cutting social programs and housing and um, you know, cutting school lunch programs and things. So John Winthrop is the governor leading his uh, leading these people into um, this really odd situation. One of the things that makes it odd is that over the previous um, relatively small number of years that there have been white people uh, in this neighborhood, their diseases have killed possibly as many as nine out of ten of the native people. Yeah. Um, I was kind of surprised at um, at the Puritans' general perspective on this fact. Yeah, King King James uh, of England, he thought that was um, you know a gift that uh, all the uh, native inhabitants or most of the native inhabitants of Massachusetts had been killed off by the plague of 1616 to 1619. Winthrop also thought, you know, this was God's providence. Um, I found a testimony from Harriet Beecher Stowe in the 19th century, um, so proud that, you know, she was a a Puritan descendant and so proud that, you know, that God had uh, cleared the land um, of the Indians so that, you know, her uh, proud forefathers could just swoop right in and, you know, pitch their tents. Um, it seems almost like it, it like uh, like all the Puritans were waiting for a bus and they're so happy that everybody got off at the last stop. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, one thing I did figure out, though, it, that uh, this sort of, um, I guess is kind of poetic, is that, you know, the Puritans, they, they're... They're violently anti-Catholic. They think the Pope is the whore of Babylon. Um, the Antichrist is a synonym for Pope in yes, their language. exactly. And they're trying to purify the Church of England of its Catholic trappings. Um, but, you know, when and so they go and build Boston, this, this Protestant bastion. And then at some point, um, I want, I needed to figure out when did their Protestant bastion, you know, turn into the Catholic capital of America? And it happened in the 19th century, you know, because of the potato famine, because of the potato blight, which is uh, basically a kind of um, germ, you know. So this, this, um, the plague um, was the germ that uh, cleared the land of Indians for the Puritans to, um, you know, settle on. And then it was uh, the germ on the potatoes in Ireland that flung all these um, Irish papists into Boston and uh, turning the most, uh, you know, Protestant city um, in the Western Hemisphere into one of the most Catholic. So that was a sort of, um, you know, microbiological comeuppance. What was your personal relationship to 
this story of the native people that live there and these people coming in, given that, you know, you had, as you just said, gotten into history specifically chronicling this horrible genocidal uh, event in Native American history. First of all, what did you learn about that you didn't know about? And also, how were you able to, because it, it feels like you've got a lot, you, you've got, you're pretty pro-Puritan, generally speaking. They at least seem to inspire you in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I guess I'm relatively pro-Puritan. Um, well, one thing I learned when I was researching, you know, that specific plague that happened between 1616 and 1619 in Massachusetts was that, you know, for starters, it's just um, one of uh, innumerable outbreaks and plagues that happened um, from one tip of the Americas to the other upon initial European contact after Columbus and, you know, various fishermen and travelers and explorers. Uh, And so when I was reading up on that general uh, horrible, bloody trend, I came across something that answered this thing that had nagged at me my whole life being a part Cherokee person, because the thing about the, the Cherokee tribe is it's pretty English. And there's, there are these southeastern tribes who used to call themselves the five civilized tribes, and the Cherokee thought of themselves as the most civilized. And, you know, they're the only American Indian tribe that has a written alphabet. And uh, they were southern planters in the 19th century. They owned black slaves, for example. And they, they um, ratified a constitution. They, they edited and published newspapers. It, it always seemed to me like the English showed up and the Cherokee just dropped whatever they were doing and, you know, signed up for um, Christianity. And and uh, and that always seemed a little, I don't know, craven to me, um, especially because I'm also part Seminole, which is a, a like tribe with a little more backbone, you know, like you have Osceola stabbing Andrew Jackson's treaty with a knife and the Seminole are still technically at war with the U.S. government. And so this thing about the Cherokee and their like Englishness always just seemed a little kind of, I don't know, um, distasteful to me a little bit. And then reading up on this, uh, the plagues that were, you know, wrecked the Americans, Americas, uh, I found a, a mention from an anthropologist about when a plague, um, ravaged the Cherokee in the southeast at some point that all the, all the um the the medicine men destroyed all the um spiritual artifacts of the tribe that they you know their gods they felt like their gods had abandoned them and so that explained to me why the English showed up and they just seemed so you know alive and well and they have this god who supposedly protects them so why wouldn't the Cherokee just you know throw down whatever they were doing and sign up for um sign up for Christianity so so that um that that made a lot of sense to me it's the sound of young America I'm Jesse Thorne my guest on the program is Sarah Val her new book is the wordy shipmates we'll have more with Sarah in just a minute when we return Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. 
If you're listening to this message, you probably already subscribe to The Sound of Young America. But have you checked out MaximumFun.org's other podcast productions? You can join the thousands who are listening to Jordan Jesse Go every week. It's a fun, silly romp through the world of young adulthood, arbitrary judgments, and of course, and perhaps most importantly, zoo animals. You might have seen the Casper Hauser comedy podcast featured on boingboing.net, on Zay Frank's blog, in the New York Magazine, or perhaps in the Times of London. It's a weird and wonderful multimedia journey through the minds of the beloved San Francisco sketch comedy group, Casper Hauser. And of course, every week we bring you a taste of Coil and Sharp, the amazing audio pranksters who roamed San Francisco in the early 1960s, pulling ordinary people into surreal and hilarious schemes. You can find these and all our podcasts at MaximumFun.org or by clicking on the author listing in any of our podcasts in iTunes. It's the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. I'm Jesse Thorne. Let's get back to my interview with Sarah Val. Her new book is called The Wordy Shipmates. There's only two real ideas, at least in, in my mind, of these early Northeastern settlers' relationships with the native people that were already there. Mm -hmm. One of them is uh, the first Thanksgiving. Heard of it. The other one is a vague sense that a lot of people got murdered. Mm -hmm. What was the actual situation? Well, I actually don't really uh, spend any time with Plymouth and all, all of that stuff. I will say several things about the... I will say several things, Jesse. One mm -hmm. of which is the first of which. Uh, the first of which is that um, Thanksgiving, as an idea to the Puritans in general, uh, it they they celebrated days of Thanksgiving, but only if if they had done something to warrant that, you know. So to to a Puritan, the idea that we celebrate Thanksgiving as an annual day in the calendar would seem blasphemous to them because what if we didn't do anything to um, deserve it? The other thing is frequently they felt they deserved days of Thanksgiving when they had done something um, to please their God, which maybe in modern eyes wouldn't be so necessarily pleasing, for example. Um, and this, I guess, is one instance of English... Uh, Indian uh, contact is um, when the English are at war with the Pequot tribe, the English militia sets a Pequot village on fire and 700 men, women, and children are burned alive. And in Boston, the news of this great victory over the enemy Pequot is celebrated with the day of Thanksgiving. So um, they have a kind of, you know, picnic to celebrate the, you know, the fact that babies just got barbecued. Um, but one of my favorite things to write about in the book was Roger Williams' relationship with the Narragansett tribe because when he was kicked out of Massachusetts, the Narragansett took him in. And so he are, he um, he he wrote this book of... That's a in, basically a kind of English uh, Algonquin dictionary, and the Narragansett were Algonquin speakers, and the just by the very words he knows in Algonquin and the way he um, teaches them to English speakers, it kind of tells the story of how he was welcomed by this tribe and how they took care of him. Their 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 you know words and phrases having to do with being offered food and 
shelter and um, just general care. And the way he describes the Narragansett uh, way of life and their relationship to one another, you know, he talks about how if one person kills a deer, everybody eats the deer. Or if one person is sad, everybody shares that sadness. And in a kind of beautiful way, um, the way he describes the Narragansett sort of, um, it's almost like they were living the ideal that Winthrop described in a model of Christian charity. They were literally rejoicing and suffering together, and it was kind of beautifully communal. They just, you know, didn't have the Jesus part. It seems like that idea of community is a really important one that keeps coming up, and that the Puritans are are leaving this uh king who they see as doing super dicey stuff with regard to their church. Mm -hmm. They think the Pope, who's the ultimate, you know, king-like religious leader of Catholicism, is basically literally the Antichrist, uh, among other colorful names. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're creating, uh, it it seems like they're creating a, a church in a community that's on a much more... I don't. I don't know how to say it. I don't want to say smaller scale, but a more specific, local, groupy kind of scale. Groupy yeah. is definitely the wrong word. Group like. Yes. Um. <laughs> I mean, they're 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 congregationalists, which means they want each congregation to be autonomous and each congregation to pick its own ministers instead of you know what they came from, the Church of England, which has a very Catholic hierarchy, and you know um an individual parish's ministers are, you know, picked by the archbishop on down. So it is definitely more kind of smaller scale and homier. But back to your thing about um, the American Indians and the Puritans, I mean, one of the most interesting figures to me to write about was Uncas, who was the um, sachem or chief of the Mohegan tribe. And he was sort of fascinating because he... He, he led this very tiny tribe, the Mohegan, and he allied himself to the English, and he became sort of like this English barnacle, essentially, and, if, and, uh, and uh, fought the Pequot um, on behalf of the English. And, he, you know, he was related by blood to the Pequot, but um, he's an interesting figure because all he cared about was preserving his one little tribe. And... He basically succeeded, but, you know, he's sort of fascinating to kind of write about and talk about because, you know, the way he sucks up to the English seems um, such a betrayal, you know, to his own people. Like, um, during the Pequot War, the English question Uncas's loyalty, and so um, so he leaves knowing this, and then he comes back and... Um, to the the English militia captain, and he and he throws um he throws some things on the floor, and then the English militia captain looks down and sees uh, all these severed heads, and um, that is their Pequots, um, and that was Uncas's way of saying like I'm on your side, you know, and uh, and when I was working on this and researching this, you know, I I went to that area and then. Basically, Uncas did succeed, and the 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 Mohegan are still, you know, a pretty 
well-established tribe. They were never removed. And, you know, they own and operate the Mohegan Sun Casino, which is one of the more fascinating architectural um, follies in um, the Northeast. I don't know where I'm going with this. They're friends with Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah. (laughs) I can only presume. (laughs) Who isn't friends with Daniel Day-Lewis? Let's talk for a minute about Roger Williams. You Let's. you talked about him writing this dictionary as he was on his way, or dictionary-like book, as he was on his way uh, out of the colony, uh, off to uh, start his own new thing. How did he get the boot? Oh, well, actually, um, he wrote... Oh, he got the boot because he was going around... Um, saying things, he was disturbing the peace by saying things like, oh, that the King of England didn't have the the right to Massachusetts unless he asked for, uh, you know, Indians' permission to be there. He he also uh, thought that the magistrates of the Massachusetts Bay Colony did not have the right to enforce religious worship or to punish people who broke um, those of the Ten Commandments that, uh, you know, are about religious worship. Um, what else did he do? Why now? This is uh, this is one of his really distinctive characteristics: the mm-hmm. fact that he believed in uh, separation of church and state, which was uh, uh, not not the going idea at the time. No. Um, why did he believe that, and what and how was his belief in that different from how we might think about it today? Well, he was kind of the most puritanical of the Puritans. I mean, he's kind of the Puritan that all the other Puritans wish was just a little less religious, you know? <laughs> and he wants the church separated from the state because he doesn't want the church mucked up by the government, and he doesn't want... Um, you know, governments are involved in wars and, and he just wants, um, he wants his little, you know, he wants the religious uh, realm to stay pure. And um, the interesting thing about him is, I mean, he comes across like he's so open-minded because when he does go on to found Rhode Island, it becomes, um, you know, a refuge and a place of religious freedom where Baptists and Quakers and Jews and all sorts of outcasts can can live freely and worship freely. He even gets a, an actual charter from the king that that he that his his spot is the religious freedom spot. It is the religious freedom spot and and they like they have more religious freedom than anywhere in England or England's empire. And um which makes him sound so open-minded but really he just thought all those other religious groups, um, that all those people were, would um, burn eternally in the flames of hell. And so he <laughs> thought that was punishment enough. <laughs> and he just thought, you know, while everyone's here on earth, we should just not kill each other. But he loved uh, bickering and arguing with the other religious groups. You know, like when he was an old man, even, he... Um, he canoes from Providence to Newport to to engage in this three day debate with these Quakers because he thinks the Quakers, you know, are insane, and um, 
you know, the crowd thinks he's drunk and they're yelling, like, old man, <laughs> old man, because he's just railing against these Quakers because, but, you know, he wants them to be there. He just, he just thinks they're wrong. And so he's, um, he's open-minded. He's just annoying. Um, <laughs> whereas in Massachusetts at that time, you know, people were hanged on Boston Common for being Quakers. So Roger Williams just wants to, you know, annoy and he wants to harangue them, just not hang them. Going back to this idea of what, how people think of the Puritans and how they live their lives is we have a very simplified idea of the Puritans as, on the one hand, very uh, having very tight rears, let's say, which turns out to be very much the case. Um, we also have uh, an idea of them as being the forebears of all... Uh, uh, religious fanaticism or enthusiastic Christianity in contemporary America. However, one of the other big heretics of the Puritan world, Anne Hutchinson, is thought of as heretical for reasons that might have more to do with, with contemporary fervent Christianity. Word. <laughs> I should have made that a question of no, some kind. Um, no, I mean, yeah, that's pretty fascinating because I think uh, I think um, they do get blamed for all the. Did you call them enthusiastic? Um... Yeah, enthusiastic or fervent Christian <laughs> yes. Christianity. Um, the Puritans are uh, of Massachusetts Bay Colony are are pretty. Um, it's not that they're unenthusiastic. They it's are just, enthusiastic about burdens, yes, various burdens they they're, bear. They're more sort of uh, bookish, and you know they they want their theologians to be fluent in Latin and Hebrew and Greek and you know um, wordy, you might say. But um, Anne Hutchinson, this woman among them who has she holds these kind of prayer meetings in her house. Um, at first, I mean, she is a groupie. She's a groupie of John Cotton, the minister. And at first she starts having the ladies over to talk about Cotton's sermon. But then soon, um, tons of people are coming to her house, some of the men. And she basically starts giving her own sermons. And then some of her followers are going around heckling the other ministers of the colony. And so she gets hauled before the court for disturbing the peace and, 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 and is put on trial. And... Uh, she basically almost gets, you know, acquits herself of the disturbing of the peace charge because she has biblical reasons and outsmarts, you know, Winthrop and the other magistrates in terms of that. But she um, she really digs her own grave. She's almost like drunk with the sound of her own voice. I wouldn't know what that's like at all <laughs> um, and during her trial. And she suddenly just like goes off and starts basically talking about all of her... Um, opinions and theories and says things like oh that you know she hears the voice of god and um this is heresy and 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 she says she's filled with the holy spirit which you know i mean it's a it's a minor point but um to the magistrates like to say you're filled with the holy spirit not unlike you know your your enthusiastic um evangelicals of today to the Puritans, that was blasphemy because they thought of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost kind of like how you would think of as a regular ghost, you know, like the Holy Spirit could be next to you or in the same room, um, but not in you, not inside you. Like, the most it could really do is creak the stairs. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
And so uh, she so she starts saying things like that, and uh, and then they kick her out. So he, here's the ultimate question, I think. Really? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay. What is the meaning? Pose, pose what is the, the meaning question. of life? Per your research, no. This is <laughs> this is uh, the ultimate question, I think, for this. We think of ourselves as being um, the children of the Puritans. We think of contemporary America as almost going directly back to those big ships coming from England. What of their values... They're, they're pretty small ships, actually. Well, they're bigger than any ship you or I might have. That is true. I mean, it depends what kind of ship you're comparing to. What about our burgeoning friendship? (laughs) 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 Oh, my God. You've done too many, way too many interviews. I'm turning into a punster. (laughs) Oh, my God. Keep going. Keep asking your ultimate question. Okay, so what of these Puritan values that you've described have translated into contemporary America, what has been realized and continues, and what hasn't, what isn't? Well, I guess um, I think the most important thing we inherited from them is their idea of themselves as God's new chosen people, you know, the, and from that we get the, the what folks call American exceptionalism, and... Uh, that it, that they are the most special and that they are blessed and that um, God has chosen them for greatness above everyone else. So I, I think that's probably the most important thing we get from them, our, our um, communal self-esteem. It seems like, you know, from watching the presidential, vice presidential debates recently, uh, that we seem to have a, a good handle on the idea, especially Sarah Palin's spoken very clearly about the idea that um, we should be a beacon of light for the world, um, and you know, of democracy and et cetera. But it seems like with these sorts of optimisms in the Puritan worldview, there is this huge volume of baggage and responsibility that is about all the stuff you have to do so you don't end up in hell. Yeah. Do you think that we've lost track of the responsibility part of the equation? I do, Jesse. That that I find the kind of puritan sense of overwhelming burdensome gloom to be the one like to be a kind of saving grace, to be the thing that keeps their hubris in check, you know, the fear of failure. And when Winthrop writes about being a city on a hill, Uh, He says, you know, things, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, you know, this could turn out great. All the world could look up to us and want to be like New England. But he also says the eyes of all people are upon us. And, you know, what if what if they see us fail? And he has this real sense of like the ending of that sermon. It has this kind of sense of foreboding and, um, you know, worry about, um, you know, incurring the wrath of God and, you know, blowing this missed opportunity and, and, um, and uh, of all these blessings. And, and for him, failure comes from disobeying God. And what the whole sermon is about is quoting all of these commandments and verses, um, in which, um, God is telling the people 
to be generous and ch- and charitable and um, to take care of one another. That those aren't just, you know, that isn't just being nice. That that, that is the law. And so um, it seems like in terms of the American inheritance of this idea of American exceptionalism, it seems like th- that sense of responsibility is... Mm, not always, you know, present. Did spending all this time with these people with this powerful, overwhelming sense of responsibility change you? Did it change your perspective on on the world at all? Did you feel either more responsible or even just guilty that you were so irresponsible? Um, hmm. Did it change me? Well, I think it gave me a little more empathy toward others' beliefs and eccentricities because especially learning about Roger Williams and um, it kind of gave me hope for the religious zealots of the world because it doesn't seem like they're going away. And he, to me, is this kind of ideal religious zealot who recognized his own fervor and that of others, and decided that um, he wasn't going to change his mind, and he was pretty sure no one else was going to change, you know, his or her mind, and so why don't we all just, you know, live together in peace and spend our days, you know, arguing? That's (laughs) really the best of all possible worlds, I think. A world filled with books and arguing. Yeah, if only if only all the fanatics of the world were were a little more like Roger Williams, you know, there would be fewer explosions. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for uh, taking all this time to be on the Sandy Young America. It was really fun to have you. Thank you, Jesse. Sarah Vowell's newest book is called The Wordy Shipmates. And with that, another Sound of Young America podcast comes to an ultra-satisfying conclusion. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music by Dan Wally. Our interns, Casey O'Brien. Nick White edited the show. My dog's name is Coco. Visit us online at MaximumFun.org. Send me an email, jesse at MaximumFun.org. If you don't donate to support the show, come on, get your act together. Just do it. It's like two bucks a month. You do it for two dollars a month. I don't care if it's the middle of the Great Depression. You can do two bucks a month. Anyway, we'll see you next time on The Sound of Young America.